Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 13 starting in verse 1 and the last time we talked about loving God that should be a no-brainer for Christians right we love God we come to church because we love God right but I think it's really a heart check to actually stop at times and think what does God want from me you know do do I pray am I concerned or do I just kind of throw up a flare when I'm in trouble so if you didn't get the message last Sunday I just would it's a good message to get Today we're going to talk about something very interesting, uh, it's eschatology, and that's just a big word for the Greek word eschatos means last, and ology is the study of, so it's the study of last things or the study of end times, and how this comes about is that the disciples, you know, they're showing Jesus the temple and the grandeur of the temple mount and the stone structure and all that kind of stuff, and and it, it actually opens the door for Jesus to start talking about end times. And most Christians know this as the Olivet Discourse, because you can go away from the Temple Mount, it's a short distance to the Mount of Olives, and you can overlook the splendor of this whole system. Now, this study of end times, uh, Jesus is going to use this opportunity to talk about not only the Temple, which the disciples brought up, but also the Church Age. Right? Even persecution of believers through the church age after his ascension, all the way through uh, the rapture, or the harpazo in the Greek, as we know, the Lord coming for his people, taking his people home before the world has to be judged for sin, the time of revelations. Okay, so, uh, so the rapture, if we could put the, uh, the slide up, the rapture happens, and then what happens is the, the last week of Daniel, the 70th week. Now, Again, you, you might be confused, and it's okay, because, and for those who are more advanced in what the Bible teaches, please bear with me, because I'm probably going to repeat things a few times so that nobody does get confused. This was a, a really neat timeline that somebody designed, uh, which really gives, because we see in linear time, God looks down at time, and he sees everything at the same time. We read the prophets, and the prophets are back, you know, thousands of years B.C., they're in the first century, they're in you know, 2,000 years later, and we get confused because we see things in linear time. That's what we were taught in grade school, right? Here's the past, here's the present, here's the future. So when you look at the timeline, you know, you look at basically Adam and Abraham and uh, basically the 70 weeks of Daniel, which Daniel was written some 300 and some odd years B.C., Daniel the prophet. He speaks about the Persians, who at the time dominated the world, Okay, they let the Jews go back to rebuild Jerusalem, and that's when the timeline started for the Messiah to come. So in other words, this happened over here, where the Persians sent back the Jews to rebuild. You could count 483 years to the time of the first century, right, with the first coming of Christ. Those were the 69 weeks, 69 Shavuah, 69 seven-year uh, period. Our decade is 10, their Shavuah was a seven-year period. So it's just... You know, we're just trying to get you up to speed on the transliteration. Anyway, it was very important for the Jews to, to, to know when their Messiah was to come. That's why in the first century a lot of people were excited because they knew the Messiah could come at any time. So you have this period between Daniel, the Persians, and the first coming of Christ. 
And then, mysteriously, the, the last week, the last seven-year period over here, it stops. There's a pause. Remember, the seven year, 70 years were for the Jews. What happens in the interim is the church age, right? The giving of the Holy Spirit, uh, the age of grace, the church age. And we are somewhere in, actually somewhere in here, okay, in the church age. There will be a point where the prophetic clock kicks in again, and that last seven-year period, known as the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament, known as the uh, 70th week of Daniel, also known as the seven-year tribulation period, will start again right in this area here. And then Christ will come back, he'll return, the second coming of Christ, and Jesus will reign on the earth. And then you have, um, you have everlasting you know, eternity. Over here is the 70th week of Daniel, which is over here, just blown up. They blow it up for you. And that's why you see all these different scriptures, because all these things really in Revelation that happen are going to happen in this period of time. Again, if you're confused, don't worry about it. We'll try to do the best we can to explain it. It was eschatology that brought me to Christ, because I couldn't believe that this could be true. I couldn't believe that somebody could predict things hundreds of years, thousands of years in the future. You know, I kind of set out to disprove it, and in a sense, I became a believer. Not only did I look at the, the uh, Old Testament writings, the New Testament writings, I looked at extra-biblical material, first-century material, etc., 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 and I was completely convinced that Jesus is true. Because the Hindu Vedas, I have two Korans at home, I got the Book of Mormon, all the different holy books, and none of them do what the Bible does. They don't. They can't. Because they're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what happens is... And let me just say this, you're not going to hear this that much, you'll hear it in Calvaries, but we can't lose sight of the Jewish flavor of eschatology. Now, there are churches today, there's denominations, I don't know if you've ever heard of replacement theology, where they basically take away every, all the promises that God made to the Jews and say the church has replaced Israel and we get to take all their blessings. Not true, because God promised things to the Jews that haven't, haven't taken place yet will take place in our near future. That's why those who have this replacement the theology, personally I think it's anti-Semitic, uh, they can't do end times prophecy because it screws everything up. You know, it's like this incredible edifice. If your, your, your foundational stones aren't right and the measurements aren't right, you can't build the building. You, you'll find some awesome Bible teachers that have been Christians longer than I've been alive and I've gone onto their website, they can't finish Revelation because their eschatological view is completely askew. So what does Jesus do? And this is, this is just a side parenthetical note. Mark's gospel was really geared to the Romans. Mark wrote to appeal to the Romans. And we talked about it in, in the beginning. However, what happens in this discourse is Mark can't avoid the Jewish flavor of what Jesus is saying as he espouses it in Mark 13. In other words, Jesus really kind of glosses over the harpazo, the rapture. That's for us, folks, you know. But what he does is he focuses on the temple, which is Jewish. He focuses on the first uh, maybe few decades of the church age where mostly Jewish people were believers and their persecution. He focuses on the seven-year period, which is for the Jews. He focuses on the second coming, which is where uh, this national repentance of Israel, the Israel that we know overseas, will have this national repentance and finally recognize her Messiah. So it, it's kind of really cool when you think about it. The last thing I'll say is that, if we could go back to the first slide, the last thing that I'll say is that 
How many of you like to go to the mall? Anybody like to go to the mall? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> See this shirt? My wife bought it for me. You know what I'm saying? She dresses me. She's awesome. Um, she goes to the mall. We have a great relationship, and she takes my credit card. But that's another story. <laughs> I have been to, in the mall a few times, and you're like, "What the heck's he talking about?" When you go into the mall, whatever entrance you go into, you'll see this, this map. It's like an aerial view of all the stores and the wings and such. And there's like hundreds of stores, and you're excited to get to your store right away. But you don't know how to navigate the mall if you, in your mind. Some of you might have memorized the floor plans, but for those of us that haven't, there's usually a big X somewhere, and it says what? That's right. You are here. Okay? Now, let's go back to our timeline. Human history is the same way. I'm going to say that the big X, you are here, is right there. The Lord Jesus Christ could come back at any time. All the prophecies prior to him coming back have been fulfilled. You are here. The, the, um, the message to the Bible, or the message to the sermon today, is the unavoidable future. For the world, it's unavoidable. For Christians, it doesn't. We, don't, we can avoid a lot of the things we see. Because if you notice up top, when the, the church is called home, right? Jesus prepares. There's things happening up here. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's celebrations. So there's almost like linear time took a, took a split. We're going along, going along, and then this is what happens. We're up here. Marriage supper of the Lamb, the, the blessings, the, 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 the glory of the Lord, the, just the time to get to know Him. And on the world, there's a seven-year tribulation. So, by the end of the, the sermon, I'm going to say that it's up to you which path you take. Everybody's sitting here. You can even go, go the path that, you know, you're a believer. The Lord's going to call you home, which is awesome. Or you can get stuck in the seven-year period. Personally, I don't think you want to be there. I certainly know I don't want to be there. So, let's jump in. Verse 1. It says, Then as he, Jesus, went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, See what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now think about that. That's a very tall statement to make. Okay? Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of all these things that will be fulfilled? You could see in the four is Christians who want a deeper understanding of the things of God. You know, the other eight, well, it's an interesting statement. We'll see what happens. The four said to Jesus, we want to know. This is, this is you've, you've, you've piqued our curiosity. We have to know the Lord, Lord Jesus. When is this going to be? I find it humorous because the disciples in Jesus had a rough few days, man. They were dealing with the corrupt religious system. They were dealing with hypocrisy. They were trying to espouse the truth of God's word. And the disciples looked like they want to change the channel to something a little bit more positive. And what does Jesus say? Hey, see all this stuff? It's going to be gone. It's going to be destroyed. I, I just find humor in that. If you've ever looked at a replica of the Temple Mount, maybe put it on your search engine, whether it's claymation or uh, miniature uh, construction, of, of Herod's uh, expanded and refurbished temple and all the, the walls of Jerusalem and everything. And we, we say, what are we talking about? Because you go there today, it's gone. Revelation tells us that a third temple will be built. And the templeinstitute.org has already got all the pieces, the lavers and the bowls and all that kind of stuff. It's ready to rock and roll. 
Okay, um, the Antichrist, I believe, will open the door to the building of the third temple, take the, take Israel off of her guard, and then attack them. That's going to be next Sunday because this would be two hours long today. So today we're only going to cover verses five to, or up to verse thirteen. If you've ever seen a replica of the Temple Mount in the temple, it, it would blow your mind. Imagine being there. It must have been breathtaking. Now, the only thing I can liken that to for us on the East Coast, you know, not in the Bible Belt or the West Coast. For us on the East Coast, I saw the Twin Towers before they were knocked down, before they were attacked, and it was amazing. I mean, you just look up and you're, how does, how does mankind do something like that? That is just incredible. And then I was there after they came down. So I saw the before and after, and that wasn't even a spiritual place. So just imagine what the Jews, how, how incredible, fantastic, not only the prophecy was, but the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus said, not one stone is left upon another. It will be. It won't be. What happened was, and I'll give you a little history, is that General Titus took his four legions of Romans and surrounded the city and breached the wall, and the Jewish defenders fought back. And this was this Roman-Jewish war from 66 to like roughly 70-plus A.D. And what happened was, the, uh, the, it was such a bloody battle, and there was such hatred between the Romans and the Jewish defenders. So what happens is they really wanted to preserve the temple. However, it just became such a... And this happens in war, such a horrible situation that the men got drunk and one of them disobeyed orders and shot a flaming arrow into one of the adjoining edifices, caught fire, the temple caught fire, and there were sheets of gold, really thin hammered out sheets of gold on, on the roof of the temple. Well, this thing heated up so hot that it started to melt and it started to go in between the crags of the stones. So what literally happened was amazing how Jesus could prophesy this to incredible detail. What happened was towards the end, the Romans just demolished the temple. They took the stones of the wall and they threw it over the ravines. They took the stones of the temple, they just busted the place down and they were, they were um, using fulcrums to get the stones off of the, each other so they could get the gold that started to drip down. You know, this was their plunder, this was their booty, so to speak. So this actually happened. And you can go into secular sources and see that I'm telling you the truth. Uh, it's pretty fantastic. But, Another interesting point is that Titus refused the victor's wreath. He said, quote, that he was just acting as an instrument of God's wrath. Now, if you really take that, that we could do a whole other sermon on that. That was amazing. And this guy was a pagan. So this is what's happening. Jesus used this discussion to prepare the disciples and Christians and us by ex- extension to prepare us for all the troubles that we would face after his ascension. See, Jesus had the disciples protected. He walked with them for three plus years. He was going to be crucified for us, for our sins. He was going to be buried. He was going to be resurrected, hang out for 40 days as a post-resurrection ministry, and then ascend into heaven. And then the persecution really started to go. And, you know, we can have a whole other sermon on persecution. But I think that a good lesson for us as believers could learn is don't get too comfortable here. I'm going to read you something about the refugees and the people that escaped ISIS, the Christians, with literally the clothes on their back and their faith. But American Christians, Western Christians, we could get too comfortable here. You know, Satan works certain ways in the African countries, the Asian countries. Satan works very differently here. He gets us to think there's no urgency, we have time, live the American dream, all this kind of stuff, and we become complacent. Satan loves when we're uncommitted and we're complacent because we have no effect on the world. 
I mean, if, if you ever, have you been looking at the news? It's, it's bad out there. Outside of these walls, it is bad. And at the very least, we should be praying because our communities are crumbling. Our federal government, our, it, it is, it's just bad. All right? Now, I'm not being a pessimist. I'm a realist. I'll read you the articles. I've got them in my office. So don't get too comfortable here. A few things that the disciples ask Jesus. It's a threefold question. Number one, when will these things be in terms of the temple destruction? Number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And number three, when will be the end of the age? It's quite possible that the disciples thought that the destruction of the temple would usher in Jesus returning. And a lot of Christians in the first century thought, oh, it's just a matter of time. He's going to come back any day now. But Jesus purposely did not set dates. What we find that Jesus said, these are the signs to be looking for. Be aware, be paying attention, be the good steward, not the wicked and lazy steward in his parables. Now, there are groups that have, between the three of them, have made literally dozens of false prophecies about the Lord's return. Whether it was the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, Harold Camping. You know, I've got to give the guy credit. At the end of his life, he repented. He said, I made several false prophecies. I got pe- people sold. You know, people sold. They, they quit their jobs, man. This has happened in, in 2,000 years. False prophets telling Christians the wrong things. And then the world thinks they're a bunch of kooks. No, we don't set dates. We never set dates. That is not what Scripture teaches. It's actually it, it's, it's disobedience to the Lord's word. Verse 5. And Jesus answered them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are all the beginning of sorrows, uh, alternate translation, these are all the beginning of birth pangs. And we'll get back to that. That Greek word is also used for a woman who's going to be going into labor and the contractions are coming. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all men for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this is all we're going to cover this morning. He says, these are the beginning of sorrows. Why are these the beginning of sorrows? Well, a few things are happening. If you read the book of Revelation between chapters 4 and 19, the church is not there. Remember, the seven-year tribulation, the Jews take center stage. The 144,000 are sealed. Does God seal us to sit on the couch? No. He seals us to do things. He seals us with the Holy Spirit. We can take some advice from that as well. So the 144,000 Jews, my understanding is they go out and they evangelize the world. This is in Revelation. There's an angel in the book of Revelation who flies through the heavens and preaches the everlasting gospel. Where are the Christians? Not here. They've come up in the first elevator. They took the first train. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. I'll read that next Sunday. There is a huge difference between the, the harpazo or the rapture and the second coming. 
Big difference, okay, and we'll cover that. But birth pangs. You know, when my wife gave birth to our only child, my son, she had a long labor, and it was hours, and he was big. <laughs> so they gave her something, and she kind of snoozed, and I was there by her bedside, and they put these transducers on her abdomen, and it was the fetal monitor. And the fetal monitor would, and now it's even more amazing what they do with this equipment, but it measured not only... Uh, his heart rate, the baby's, but it measured the mother's contractions. And I would see that when the thing would start to spike, all of a sudden her eyes would open <laughs> and she'd sit up. Like, that, was, that must have hurt. So you, you see this, and then what happened is as the, as the graph would go down, the medication would kick back in and she'd be out again. And I watched this for a long time. But what happened was the baby was coming. There was no turning back. Now let's liken this to 2014. The Lord's coming back. The Lord is ushering his kingdom. The world can say, no, we don't want you. But you know, the nations can, can say things about the Lord and say we don't want you, but he's coming back. It's his creation. And he's going to come back to redeem him. So we're going to have these birth pangs. We're going to have this frequency and intensity. I'm going to say this a few times. Frequency and intensity of these, these uh, issues in human history, but there is no turning back. The damage to creation is irre irreparable. I'm going to talk about geology a little bit. The hatred among mankind is at a fever pitch, and sin must be judged. So like these birth pangs, these things will happen in human history, and we'll, we'll cover a few of them. So verses 5 through 13 spans the ascension of Jesus Christ to today and beyond into the tribulation with frequency and intensity. Now understand that, again, this seven-year period that we're going to cover, okay, is the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 37, the time of wrath, Zephaniah 1, and the time of indignation, Isaiah 26, which also uses labor pains as an illustration. So let's look at this. Two more points, and then we'll jump into it, just so I could break this down to be completely understandable. There's three segments regarding the seven-year tribulation in this chapter that Jesus speaks about. Okay, If you want to put that uh, image back up again. So there's three segments. There's from here to here, which is the first half of the seven-year period, the three and a half years, it's bad, right, in the tribulation. Then the Antichrist who reveals himself, he really dupes the world to believe that he's a Messiah, that he's God. That's when things really start to get ugly, and this is the second half. So we're going to cover this. Next Sunday we're going to cover this and most of this. So verses 5 through 13, the first half of the tribulation. Verses 14 through 18 is the middle of the tribulation or the turning point. And verses 19 through 27 is the second half of the tribulation where the Antichrist sets himself to be uh, worshipped. And you'll see uh, overlap in the book of Revelation. Now, in the first that we're going to cover, the first segment, verses 5 through 13, I'm going to break that up into three categories. The first category is going to be verses 5 and 6. Okay, spiritual indicators of the tribulation. Spiritual deception. Now, we've always had spiritual deception. I can name plenty of cult leaders. However, it's going to get worse with what? Frequency and intensity. Okay, verses 7 and 8. The second category is global indicators of the tribulations. We've always had wars and global catastrophes. Do a little study on geology. It's not pretty what's going on in the Earth's crust. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. It's bigger than us. Verses 9 through 13, personal indicators of the tribulation. Again, we've always had persecution with believers, but I'm going to give you some statistics about the last 10, 20 years that are going to blow your mind about how many Christians have been martyred in the modern age. It's, it's 
horrific. And what's the UN doing? I don't know if they're asleep somewhere, but nobody's really talking about it. But it's being chronicled. So strap your seatbelts on. We're going to take a we're going to take a a drive through time in our time machines. Starting with verse 5. And Jesus answered them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. So the first category, spiritual deception. He's speaking to his disciples, but he's speaking to Christians. What is the command we can find in here? Don't be deceived. That's the command. He's actually telling us, I'm commanding you, be obedient, don't be deceived. Now you might say, that's weird. Who wants to be deceived? Come on, we deal with people every day. They're okay if you lie to their face, say nice things on Facebook, like their posts, and then talk smack behind their back and try to knife them in the back. They can't handle the implications of the truth. To me, just tell me. My breath smells. I'll take a a mint out of my pocket and pop it in. It's all good. No offense. Tell me what's wrong with me so I can fix it. Don't lie to my face. Tell me it was a terrible message. Everybody hated it. And then you all, you know... And then I I think I'm doing the right thing here. So people want to be deceived. Now, we can't be deceived about the personhood of Jesus Christ or the mission of Jesus Christ. When we get Christ wrong, we get salvation wrong, and we do it to our own peril. A lot of people are espousing Jesus, the Lord, you know, the cross is everywhere. But is it the Jesus of the Bible? Verse 6, false Christs. This was something that affected the Jews. How many have heard of Thutis and Judas of Galilee? <laughs> In Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel told his uh, religious system, will you stop beating up the disciples so much? You know, there was a lot of false guys that, that came and, and then the Romans scattered them and they disappeared. The same will happen with these followers of Jesus. Just give it some time. But if it's of God, you don't want to be fighting against God. So this is found in Acts chapter 5. How many have heard about Bar Kokhba? Go to your encyclopedia. Go to your search drive. Bar Kokhba, anybody? Roughly 132 AD. I know I'm going to get a little into history and science, so I hope you had your coffee this morning. Bar Kokhba rose up after the ascension of Jesus and told the Jews, look at me, I'm the Messiah. Don't follow that Jesus. Look at me. So what happened was, again... The Romans were getting tired of the revolutions. They were getting real tired of this real fast. So what happened was because of Bar Kokhba, some, some decades after Jesus, the Romans were so furious and the Roman Empire hated the Jews so much that they almost eradicated them. Be careful who you follow. Jim Jones took them down to, to South America, right? Drank the Kool-Aid. We use that expression today. Killed all those people. You know, some of them were doctors and lawyers. They weren't all dumb, but they were deceived. You don't have to be smart, or you don't have to be dumb to be deceived. You can be smart and still be deceived. So Bar Kokhba almost had the Jews eradicated from the face of the planet, and they were not allowed to go back to Jerusalem. It was a heartbreak for the Jews, but they followed the wrong guy, wrong Messiah. What I have to say today is probably not going to be very popular. And every so often I have a sermon where... I just know it, and I have to pray extra, because you know what? I want everybody to like what I say, but that's not my job. Today, the groundwork is being laid to follow a man. What do we have today in the last 10 or so years? Celebrity politicians. Every election cycle, both parties come together and see how they can put up some rock star, get the people to vote for them, and a lot of them are hollow. They're they're just charisma. There's no character there. 
You see it in the political world. We're seeing it in the spiritual world, too. Now, what I also, as I was preparing this and praying, I thought about this. I mused that those with the largest audience, I don't mean a few thousand, I mean millions. The men who are preaching, the women who are teaching, with the largest audience, save a few, are some of the worst heretics around. Why? Because it, people like to hear things that they want to hear, so they'll follow them. I've done my homework. I have the transcripts if you want to see them. I'm not going to keep repeating it. Joel Osteen does not preach a salvation gospel. T.D. Jakes, Joyce Myers, a lot of the junk that's on Trinity Broadcasting Network. I meet Christians all the time. They have a hodgepodge of ideas of Christianity. Some of it is steeped in Eastern mysticism. This stuff creeps in. If, if Joel preached a serious, honest-to-God judgment, uh, save from your sins, salvation message, he'd probably empty half that place out. And who's going to pay the bills? Now, I'm going to say this too. Somebody else came on the scene that I gave him some time to see. I listened to the teachings. I wanted to see what was going to happen. Pope Francis. Here's an article from the National Catholic Reporter. He says, There is no such thing as do-it-yourself Christians or free agents when it comes to faith. He described as dangerous the temptation to believe that one can have a personal, direct, immediate relationship with Jesus Christ without communion with and without the mediation of the church. I guess he never read John 15. When he quotes this stuff, he never uses scripture. He never even refers to the teachings of Jesus. Who is this guy? He's a guy. And millions of people follow him. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. There was no mediator between the vine and the branches. And it said that if we don't take our nutrients, if we don't take our spiritual building from the vine, Jesus Christ, we're, just, we're to be cast off. Did you know that the thief on the cross in Luke 23, another scripture, I don't know if he read, when the thief was hanging there, he professed his faith in Jesus. Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. The man was not, he didn't say to the Roman soldiers, can you take these nails out? I got to take communion first. I got to get baptized first. He bled to death. He didn't go to purgatory, okay? He didn't have the church. He went right to heaven because of his belief in Jesus Christ. Listen, we either believe what the scriptures say or we believe men. That's why you have Bible. So if I say something off the wall, you can come to me after service and say, if you don't change this, I don't think I'm going to come here anymore because what you said was not scriptural. You can't do both. It's either we trust Jesus and we trust his word or we trust man. And I'm saying this because I don't want you to be deceived. Here's the, the other article from Pope Francis. Quote, quote, when we read about Genesis from creation, creation, we run the risk of imagining God was a magician with a magic wand able to do everything, but that is not so. No, I got, I got one better for you. He didn't need a magic wand because it, it, he spoke everything into existence. He, had, he could do it with his hands tied behind his back. He didn't need a wand. He created human beings and let them develop according to the internal laws that he gave to each one so they would reach their fulfillment. God is not a divine being or a magician, but the creator who brought, it's so contradictory, but the creator who brought everything into life. Evolution in nature is not inconsistent with the notion of creation because evolution requires the creation of beings that evolve. Another problem, Romans 5, says when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and death through sin, because death spread to all mankind because everybody sinned. Here's the issue with what he's saying. 
If we started as fish and then reptiles and monkeys and apes, and then we, poof, we became this completed form that we know as human beings. Here's the problem. Things died before we got to the human being. The Bible says that death didn't enter the world until sin entered the world. So how did sin enter the world? Did animals sin? They don't have the capacity to sin. He's saying that things go from imperfection to perfection. The Bible says that God made everything perfect first and because of sin went to imperfection. He's saying things that are completely opposite the scripture. This is not a reflection on Catholic people. This is a reflection on a man with a, with a whole lot of hubris. And sometimes when a person rises that high, they just think they can say anything. Well, popes are infallible. Who said that? A bunch of fallible men. Paul Washer on false teachers said, he's got some good quotes. He said, we often think that people fall prey to false teaching, and that happens at times, but the dominant theme in scripture is that false teachers, he uses like Joel Osteen, are God's judgment on those who don't want God, but in the name of God, they can get everything that their carnal hearts desire. It goes back to the last message last Sunday. Do we want God or do we want the stuff that God provides? Do we, when we get to heaven, do we know God? If we knocked on a stranger's door, would he recognize us? Oh, wait a minute, God, let me in. I don't know you. But you have a really nice living room. Look at all that. You've you got to let me in. I don't know you. These people teach about the things of God, the blessings of God, without the relationship with God. Leave you with this on this subject. Revelation 13, the false prophet, and we're going to get into this. The false prophet was a false spiritual, actually not was, is, he's in the future, because he's the buddy with the Antichrist and the dragon, Satan, who gives them their power. The false spiritual ecumenical leader will look like a lamb. It says he will have two horns like a lamb but he'll speak like a dragon. You don't think that's deceptive? What does looking like a lamb mean? Well, if he had two horns like a lamb and looked like a, he looked like a lamb, what is he trying to, who is he trying to imitate? Jesus Christ. Right? He's, he's the false representation of who Jesus is. What does looking like a lamb look like? Taking pictures with the poor, taking pictures with the disabled. It, what it does is it tugs on your heartstrings. Listen, People in Calvary Chapel, we should be helping the poor. So I, I have no problem with that. However, the, the smiles, the soothing talk, the charismatic way, but he spoke like a dragon. That's this populist way, this populist celebrity mentality that we're dealing with in this country to draw people against the truth of the gospel and the truth of his word to set us up for this false system where the world will be duped. And by the time he reveals his hideous nature that he is the dragon, it's going to be too late. Too late. Second Timothy 4 tells us that times will come. We're in those times that people will not endorse sound doctrine. They will leave places, venues where they get sound doctrine. They will go to find places where their ears can be tickled. They want to hear what they want to hear. That's why the false teachers have the biggest followings. You say, oh, they're successful. No, they're saying what people want to hear. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. Ask my wife. I'm a dull guy. I'm married to this book. I don't go too far away from it. I, I'm afraid to. It's, it's all good, though, because that's where we, we are in the, the realm of safety when we stay with what God's word says. Second Thessalonians 3 says, The falling away must come first, and then the Antichrist, the man of sin, and then the return of the Lord. So there has to be a falling away. 
Everything is not good in Western Christianity. Verse 7 and 8. It says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. We've always had these things, but they're going to increase with frequency and intensity. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. So the second category, and we've got one more to go, the second category is wars and global t- catastrophes. Do you realize how many nations today are at war? I think sometimes because we're surrounded by the Atlantic and the Pacific, sometimes in our minds for serenity, we're also surrounded by the Atlantic and the Pacific. Just what goes on here. However, Central America, there's a lot of people being killed. The cartels in Mexico, it doesn't have to be a war. There's bloodshed. People are losing their lives. It's happening in in the continent of Africa, in some of those nations. It's happening in the Middle East. There's Asian skirmishes. There's just bloodshed everywhere on this horrible earth. Don't get comfortable here. I don't want, I'm not comfortable here. You know, to me, when the Lord comes, he can come. But don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. Because, and and let's make the analogy again with childbirth. The mother goes through pain, through suffering, and then the child is born. And they clean up the child, and the mother gets to hold the child, and she's not thinking about the pain of contractions anymore. She's thinking about this beautiful little baby that was in her womb that she can hold. So we can't be troubled either. We see these things happening in the world. When the Lord returns, oh man, it's rest. It's finally peace. I have to tell you, when I held my son, for some reason he, he has now green eyes. He's got my wife's coloring. But when he was born, he had blue, blue eyes. I don't know where they came from, but they changed. <laughs> so he didn't have them for very long. And I held him in my arms and he looked at me and, and I saw his eyeball studying my face. Like, who is this guy? You know what I'm saying? And I just started weeping, you know, and it just was a new era for my wife and I now raising him. He's such a good baby too. Jesus is so awesome. He uses simple things that we could all understand to get what he's saying. All right, a little bit of geology here. Earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, ocean trenching, climate change, floods and storms are all a result of tectonic activity in the lower part of the earth, Earth's crust and the upper mantle. There's all these fault lines in that region of the lithosphere. And what happens is subduction. They, they move. These plates move and they go under each other. And then it causes seismic activity. As, as a matter of fact, when he says earthquakes, in the Greek the word is seismos, where we get in English seismic activity. Pretty impressive, isn't it? Who says the Bible's not scientific? Right? <laughs> One geologist, I remember him describing the earth. He said, the best way I could explain fault lines, and because they're, they're in the ocean floors too, it causes ocean trenching, it causes disturbances, it causes tsunamis, and there's the whole wave effect, and the, it's really cool scientifically, but he said that it's like a hard-boiled egg that was dropped on the floor too many times, and you pick it up and you see all those cracks. He goes, that's what the earth looks like with all these fault lines. Now, now, Again, the world will look at this and make their own conclusions. Because now, again, it's, I like to try to talk about the relevancy of what's going on in our culture. Since the elections, now there's this big talk about climate change. Now, will the Republicans be for it or against it and all this stuff? The, here's the issue. The issue is that climate change is... We're so small compared to the rest of the planet. 
And I know this illustration has been used, but let me, let me use it again, and let me, let me go a little bit further. Do you know that if we all stood shoulder to shoulder real tight, and we all had about two and a half square feet of, of room, you can fit about 8 billion people in the city of Jacksonville, Florida, which is about 830 square miles. So let's just make it rounded off. Round numbers, do some math this morning. Let's say it's 1,000 square miles. Okay, we got a little bit more room. That's nice. Every single person on the planet can fit in that city in Florida. Now think about how big the world is. Let's look at this. Did you know that the square mileage of the Earth's population is 200 million square miles? Now when you take all the people who are breathing their carbon, and I tell you, I hear this, that the, that the, the dinosaurs, it was methane, and they flatulated their way into extinction. Okay? <laughs> And these scientists can say this with a straight face, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I use the, the scientific term, flatulence. But, so we're all standing there, and we're breathing, and we're passing gas, and we're doing all kinds of stuff. According to mathematics, we inhabit, collectively, human beings, one part per 200,000 on the Earth's surface. Think about that. That's way less than a half or a quarter or a tenth of a percent. That's a very small impact. The issue is that we need to see what the Bible says. The Bible says that there was perfection, then there was sin, then there was the ramifications or the, the curse of sin. There was death, there was entropy, everything goes from a state of order to disorder, there's tectonic activity, climate change, and so on and so forth. So while non-believers fear about the planet, save Mother Earth, all this kind of stuff, Mother Earth is, is not going to be here. Let me tell you something. The new Earth, I don't, call it, I don't know if it's Aunt Earth or Grandmother Earth, whatever God makes next, that's where I want to go because you don't have all this stuff now, the storms and the earthquakes and all that stuff. God says, I create a new heaven and a new Earth. That's what we look forward to. That's why as Christians, when we start to get worried about this stuff, we're not really trusting in the Lord because he's got some awesome stuff prepared for us. Amen? Amen. All right. Famines, diseases often follow wars and breakdowns of society. We talked about the refugee camps from ISIS. Verse 9. He says, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues. Remember, Jewish flavor. The early church was Jewish. Was Jewish. The Gentiles, which I'm one of them, came into the fold later. And you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake and for a testimony to them for them to get saved, hopefully. And the gospel must be first preached to all the nations. You know that Thomas, the disciple, went all the way without a plane fare, right? Without a train, without a boat. Thomas went all the way east to India. They still have churches called the, the Church of Thomas in India. He went thousands of miles all the way east to reach the Indian people. So the disciples, they went all over the place preaching this gospel. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, a father his child. This happened in Nazi Germany with the Hitler youth. Little kids, they didn't know any better. They were brainwashed. They went to these camps, these indoctrination camps. And, and if the parents at home didn't talk favorably of the Nazi government, they went and these parents were taken out in the dead of the night. Communism, the same thing. Jesus pegged it. You know, this has been going on for a long time. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all men for my name's sake, 
but he who endures to the end shall be saved. He who endures to the end shall be saved. This is not a faddish religion, folks. And people do this. They're like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm 30 years old or I'm getting, getting closer and, and, you know, whatever. I don't want to throw ages out there and people get offended at me, but whatever. It's some age. And, and I, want to, I want to join a religion. I need some spirituality in my life. If that's what you're looking for and you're not looking for the truth, don't choose Christianity. Just You're wasting your time. Because this is, this is something that will transform your life. If you're not ready for it, don't choose it. If you, if you really want God and you want your sins to be forgiven and you want what God has, then that's the way to go. But he says, he who endures to the end will be saved. It's not a faddish religion. And, and, and in these times, not good. Fads and, and Christianity will be the big bullseye. So if you become a Christian, you really, it's a spiritual conversion. So we talked about... Um, well, let's talk about the book of Acts. The book of Acts chronicles the disciples, the followers of Jesus after the ascension and all the persecution they uh, received at the hands of their family, their synagogues, their, uh, their rulers. You can read the book of Acts to find that. Just a few uh, Christians over the centuries. A book that I would suggest you have in your library as a Christian is Fox's Book of Mar Martyrs. You sit down and you start reading about Christians over the centuries who have gone through so much for their faith and it's really inspiring. Tertullian said to his persecutors, he goes, we multiply when you mow us down. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He didn't say, oh no, I denounce Jesus, please, no, spare my life. This is what he said. Polycarp, who is discipled by the disciple John, discipleship works, says to his persecutors, he goes, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour. A lot of Christians were burned alive. I tell you something, if you've ever been burned even partially, it is a horrible experience. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Bring it on. That's what he said. And they did. The pain of rejection hurts. I don't care how tough you are. I don't care what shells you've built. Rejection hurts. It hurts even more when you're rejected by members of your own family, your spouse, your children. And a lot of people deal with that when they choose to follow the Lord. But the Holy Spirit plays a major role in guiding what we say in times of that persecution. A few quick figures. From A.D. 33, right? Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, to the year 2000, it's estimated. It's a wild estimation because it's hard to completely calculate there are censuses in certain countries and such. 45 to 70 million Christians have been martyred in that period. Now check this out. From 2000 to 2010, much more accurate, right, that we can, we can chronicle this stuff. Ten-year period, one million Christians have been martyred in that small period. It's proportionally out of proportion. I want to read one more thing to you and put this in perspective and of course, I left it in my office. Pastor Paul, would you mind? <laughs> it's on my desk. It's, uh, it's uh, far-reaching ministries, mostly black background with white writing. How embarrassing. It happens. You know I'm not perfect. <laughs> so Maybe I could do a puppet show or, I don't know, something. Well, let's just, how about I go with the closing first? The name of the message is The Unavoidable Future. It is the unavoidable future. The world must go through this. Okay? From here on, it gets heavy. Um, many of you are fascinated. I was. As a, 
barely believer, a new believer, who's the Antichrist? Christians do silly things. Not only do they set dates, but then they, they look at world leaders and go, I wonder if he's the Antichrist. That guy's the Come on. You know, a lot of people thought, I don't even want to go into names, but their time is coming. I know you're laughing because it happens. It's not what we're supposed to do as Christians. We're supposed to be prepared. You know, we're supposed to be paying attention. So a few things. Number one, if we have one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord, we need to make a decision because this world is passing away. Right? The world is passing away. Our faith is precious and not to be taken for granted because we have freedom of worship in the United States, but that could change. There's little things here and there that are happening. Um, Christianity is losing in the courts. You know, you can teach Hinduism and Islam and a whole bunch of stuff in schools and Christianity, they put the brakes on. Why? Why? It's a spiritual dimension. So that can change. Prioritizing things of God higher than what's important to us in the temporal world. Satan loves when we're distracted and uncommitted. We have a lot of issues that we deal with in this country that distract us. You know, I've been seeing a lot of issues lately about sports and how sports are, it's like the new God. It's the altar of sports. I could bring up a, a box and say, what, is, what do we worship? I could take out the soccer ball, the football. Guys, really, when we get to heaven, do you think God's going to throw us a pass? you think he cares that we know statistics on how many hoops, how many touchdowns, how many home runs, RBIs, and all that kind of jazz? Really. I mean, it's really something to consider. Anything that you put all of your effort into above God, you're making it a God. Okay? And, and that's just, it is what it is. We all have our things. We all have our things that creep into our life that are innocuous, but we can make them on a platform and put them in front of God. Four is know your Bible. If you miss a message, get it free on the, on the internet. Read your Bible. You know, we were in the, when we were in the men's devotion this weekend, we were talking about knowing our Bibles. And we were talking about you know, not being deceived and to really leading our family in righteousness. You know, guys, especially guys, you're doing devotions with your wife, your kids. I mean, if they don't want to hear it, they don't want to hear it, but at least try. You know, I mean, that's what God has called us to be. He's called us to be spiritual warriors. Sometimes we take that mentality and we put it in misplaced areas. But what we should be doing is leading our family. It's not easy to do. Mustering up the troops all the time and, and just putting it in and, and blessing our family. And, but it's something that we're called to do. You found it. It is. Hey, by the way, you have a lot of cutting and pasting to do after this message. Man, it's always hot up here. <laughs> Is it? Okay, so we're going to read something. Okay. Basically, this is what Christians are dealing with over in the Middle East. And obviously, after the whole ISIS, you know, radical Islam is just taking people and just martyring them. It's, it's a horrible thing. But I'll just read this. It's uh, maybe a page. This is their experience, and there's a picture of them in these refugee camps with nothing. That's why we uh, are doing at least three or, three or so things to support them from our church. Every church should be doing this. It says, one day fear ripples through the community. ISIS fighters are on the outskirts of town. The Iraqi army has fled their positions as ISIS has taken control. All of the stories that you have heard of their brutality do not match the evil that shatters your once quiet community. 
ISIS fighters go door to door. People, neighbors uh, you have lived with are dragged onto the street and shot or beheaded as a quick public declaration of Sharia law. You and your family are huddled in the back of your small home when the door flies open and ISIS militants storm into your house. They beat you and your wife and drag your family out into the dusty streets. Somehow you know that you are, they know that you are Christians and as your family huddles in the dirt, they use your family to make a public decree to the entire town. We offer you three choices. Islam, that's the first choice. The Dima contract involving payment of jizya. By the way, that's found in, in the Quran. I looked at it. So all the pinheads on, on TV can say, oh, it's there. I have two Qurans at home. Whatever I read, I go back. Surah 9:29. it's there. Make them pay the tax. Either convert them to Islam, kill them, or make them pay the tax for being uh, an infidel. If you refuse this, you will have nothing but the sword. You know that you cannot deny Jesus, so you are forced to accept the payment. What happens next, however, makes paying the tax impossible. The ISIS militants mark your door with a spray-painted Arabic letter for N, meaning Nazarene, Christ of Nazareth, and they immediately seize your property. With your property and your life savings stripped from you, your family becomes homeless and unable to buy food. As bad as this is, however, the nightmare for you and your family is just beginning. Without a home and the ability to buy food, you and your family do your best to find places to rest and safety away from the militants. One afternoon, a group of militants run into your family and begin to openly mock you. The leader of the militant group decides that your wife is no longer your property and that he will take her in marriage. You try to fight, but you're quickly subdued and left bloody and unconscious in the streets. The militants take your wife and repeatedly violate her, usually your daughters too. When the commander is, is finished with her, he gives her in marriage to another militant. This brutality continues for days until the militants are done with her and she's publicly, publicly beheaded in the streets as an infidel. This story is not unique to your family. Heads of beheaded infidels, including children. These people are on the front lines, by the way. I support them, too. They're called, um, called uh, far-reaching ministries. Um, well, you get the point. You know, all they had to do was deny Jesus. You wonder, why didn't they just deny Jesus? Again, in America, we have a lot of choices. Faith, coming to church, reading our Bible... I'll get around to it. So many things I have to do to further myself. Let me tell you something. I'm guilty too. So don't, don't please, don't. You compare me with a pastor in the Middle East, I'm probably a joke. Just saying. So let's just say, when I say we, we, folks, we don't come here on Sunday morning to get massage. We come here to get serious about our faith. They could have denied Jesus, every single one of them, but they chose to go this route. Because they know that Jesus Christ is doing things in those areas. He's appearing to people. He's strengthening them supernaturally. They know that he's real. So why just say it and, and go along with a conversion and everything goes away and then you, let, you, you live maybe another 20 years and your life is over when all eternity is waiting for you? Brothers and sisters, you've got to fight the culture like the salmon. You've got to swim up the tide. And the culture is the water that's pushing us down. And as believers, we've got to swim against that because things are coming in this country and if you don't see it, it's you're not paying attention. I just want to encourage everybody here. Listen, we have a lot of friends that are fleshy and carnal and trying to tell us not to be fundamentalist or serious. We want to seriously love them into the kingdom and everybody else who's out there suffering. Amen? Let's pray. <laughs>
You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.